want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number nine. Altitude. Altitude. They are trying to get a hold of Saudi Arabia, their Jeddah. Um, nobody can get a hold of Jeddah. Nobody. Um, and so we try every frequency that we have. We're trying to tell them that there are going to be two F 16s fully combat loaded going into their country without permission. Oh, by the way, we're going to be in the 30s and it's going to look kind of sketchy coming straight out of Syria right into your back door. Like, real sorry. This episode is sponsored by Squadron Posters and Wingman Watches, both veteran-owned companies and all their products built right here in the United States. Not only am I a fan of Squadron Posters, but I've been a customer of theirs for about four years now. A few years ago, a member of my squadron worked with their poster design team to build a custom poster for our squadron, the 77th Fighter Squadron. After seeing the end result, not only did I order our squadron poster, but I ordered the posters of all my previous units. Squadron Posters is a great way to capture your memories and showcase the places you have traveled, where you have lived, and some of the amazing things you've accomplished. Check out squadronposters.com and their truly unique artwork. Let Squadron Posters custom art help you share your journey today. Use the code RAIN10 for 10% off your order of $59 or more. Next, I also like to thank Wingman Watches for sponsoring this podcast. I'm excited to have them as a sponsor. I have four of their watches and absolutely love them. If you're looking to build a timepiece that is truly unique, I highly recommend Wingman Watches. Their design team will take care of all the hard work. From taking your concept and shaping it into reality to something that you absolutely love, but they'll also handle all the logistics of organizing the group order, collecting the payment, and dealing with all the necessary logistics that go into it. They're perfect for law enforcement, fire department, medical, sports teams, military, you name it. If you have an organization and you want to build a custom watch for your team, I highly recommend Wingman Watches. Let them build your watch today. Go over to wingmanwatch.com and start your order. You can mention my name and receive a discount on that custom order. Or if you see a watch that you already love that's in stock, you can use the code RAIN10 and receive 10% off that purchase. Welcome and thanks for listening. The voice you heard in the opening is my good friend, Kristen Tally Hollerith, former F-16 pilot, flying the T-38 now. We're going to talk about her career progression in the Air Force as well as some combat sorties today. Before we get rolling to the podcast, again, just like to ask, if you're enjoying it, please hit subscribe. Leave me some ratings and reviews over on iTunes. It helps out. With that said, let's get into the podcast. You go ahead and say something real quick. I'll look at the...
I'll say something. Wow, that you nailed it. I can listen to directions most of the time. <laughs> nothing more, nothing less. <laughs> I said something. Well, Tally, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I'm really excited hey, to have you on here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I think people are really going to like hearing your journey in aviation. You've got some cool stuff. We've done a little bit of flying together, which is a lot of fun. So it's cool to have you on here and to share some of those memories, air quotes. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Rain. I appreciate it. Yeah. So with that being said, can you tell me and everyone who's listening just a little bit about who you are, how you got to where you are today and what you're doing? Um, well, I'm Kristen Holrith. I go by Tally. Uh, I, uh, born and raised in California, decided, uh, pretty late that I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, um, ended up getting in. It was an interesting journey for me getting into flying. It wasn't something that anybody in my family did, um, but ended up kind of falling into it and falling in love with it at the same time. Uh, went to pilot training at Columbus, actually stayed at Columbus with you, Yeah. Um, but in the better squadron, uh, flying T-6s as a first assignment instructor pilot or FAPE. And then from there, got selected to go to the F-16. So went and did my training actually at Kelly um, with the Texas Air National Guard, uh, which was a pretty interesting experience. And then uh, from there, went to Shaw. I actually only did one assignment in the Viper. I went from there and actually was lucky enough to pick up a active duty spot flying the T-38 as a, I fly adversary air for the F-22. Um, and then from there, I actually have just recently in the last year transitioned over to the Air Force Reserve, still flying T-38s, but with the reserve squadron here in uh, Destin, Florida now. And then, uh, went over and took the big leap into the airlines. So doing that gig as well. So a lot of stuff we can dissect there. I think one thing to highlight is you're flying T-38s now, but the reason you really sought out for that assignment, and I think you're happy doing that compared to flying the F-16 is your husband flies the F-22. And that's kind of a unique thing to have two fighter pilots flying two different platforms and being able to live in the same location at the same time. Yeah. So we were, uh, we got married just after I graduated from the Academy. So he was a 2005 grad from the Academy. I was 2006. He went on went to pilot training, knew he wanted to be a fighter pilot. <clears throat> um, he chose to, he actually put to be a first assignment instructor pilot first on his list so that we could be stationed together. So we had that assignment together. Uh, he ended up getting selected to leave his FAPE assignment early to go to the F-22, which was bittersweet because we were obviously going to be stationed apart. And then fast forward six and a half years of being stationed apart. So uh, a little bit of a challenge there on the marriage. We ended up with me getting that T-38 spot. I got to go to Tyndall where he was stationed in Panama City, Florida to fly the T-38 against him in the F-22. So it was a bittersweet thing. Actually, your wife, Anna, was one of the ones that I talked through it with when I was given the option to go to the T-38 because I really didn't want to leave the Viper, uh, your first love kind of thing. But um, but it was a good move for our family. And and then at that point, it was a it was a good assignment to be able to take the time. We actually had two kids after that. So um, not being in the Viper made it so that I could get requalified in the airplane and stuff a lot easier being in the T-38 after having kiddos. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize the struggles that go into a dual mill 
marriage as far as especially both flying fast jets. Like we just don't have a lot of bases or like I'm trying to think of any bases where you can have two different fighters flying and then, you know, being geolocated because you guys were doing the commute from South Carolina to, to Florida and South Carolina to Virginia. And that just not only is it really time consuming to be a fighter pilot Monday through Friday, if that's like the best case scenario, if you exclude all the stuff that goes on on weekends, <laughs> there's no time to see one another and you're both doing the same thing. So just at different bases. Um, yeah, yeah I, but I think, I think it's a little, it's, so it's, it's pluses and minuses, right? So when we left on the deployment, it was a lot easier for me and Paul, my husband, uh, to be able to acclimate to that because we saw each other once, maybe twice a month. And so when we would go TDY or could just go out of town or even on the deployment, it was, that was ops normal. You know, yeah. we didn't end up people who are at home, that's a lot bigger struggle because you have that person that's there every single day and all of a sudden they're gone for six months, you know, that, that takes a huge toll on your family. And so I think it's, I mean, everybody has a a different struggle with it, you know? And so it's just acclimating to what you've got. Cause now we live together and there are days where I say (laughs) like, you have got to get out of town, man. I know that we waited six and a half years to be together, but get out of my space. Yeah. I mean, I know tone really well and you're a saint. I'll just say that. No, love them. Um, so backtracking a little bit, you said you kind of got late into the game, going to the Air Force Academy and flying, which I think is rather atypical because most people kind of gear up for it's a long process to get into the academy and then flying. That's something they've always had the bug for. So what flipped the switch for you? What made you want to go to the Air Force Academy? What made you want to get into aviation? Man, I feel like I'm going to be a real bummer to people who listen to this, but uh, <laughs> it's a happy ending. Um <laughs> So I was a junior in high school and I had actually talked to this girl. I was a swimmer all through high school. And I was talking to a girl on my swim team and said, she was talking about the air force Academy randomly and said, you know, it's impossible to get into. It's not even worth trying, blah, blah, blah. You have to have like 5.0 GPA and all this stuff. And so I, I was like, well, okay. I'd never really even considered it, but all right, guess I won't apply there. Um, and then the summer before my senior year in high school, my oldest uncle, or sorry, my mom's middle brother passed away. He was a retired chief. So we all went out for the funeral and my, the oldest brother, my uncle Jerry said, uh, he started talking to me and he, I never knew, but he had been a liaison officer for the Academy back in the day. So he was a retired Lieutenant Colonel and, um, and so the liaison officer is essentially, is essentially a recruiter. It helps you kind of get through the process, navigate the process of applying to the academy. And uh, and he said, hey, why don't you apply? And I said, I heard it's impossible. There's no way I'm ever going to get in. I don't know why I would do this. I've already been accepted to other colleges. Or I hadn't been accepted to other colleges, but I had I had it like charted out. I knew what I was going to do. Uh, and he said, well, why don't you just apply? Well, I applied. I didn't get in. And so I was like... I was not super pleased with my uncle at that point because I don't like getting told no. It's just really not my jam. Huh, didn't know um, that about you. <laughs> weird. And so I, um, 10 days before basic started. So basic started, I think on this, on June 25th or 26th, something like that, the late June timeframe. So 10 days before basic, I got a letter uh, that I had gotten in. And so good and bad because I didn't really get to think twice about it at that point. I looked at my mom. She actually pulled out my acceptance as she was about to mail my check in 
for my first year at Virginia Tech. And uh, so she said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I think I'm going to go to the Air Force Academy. So I kind of jumped right into it. My So my mom's brothers were military, but she was your stereotypical make love, not war, California hippie, just didn't have anything to do with that kind of stuff. Um, and so I said, well, I, I think I'm going to go. And so my mom was a single mom. I was her only child and I'm 17. She had to sign a piece of paper that said, Hey, uh, I give up my parental rights for her to go to the Academy. <laughs> and, uh, and then I went, um, I went there intending to be a doctor. I did uh, one semester of chemistry and was like, that's right out. <laughs> um, so props to all the healthcare workers. I, one, couldn't hack it. And two, you're amazing. Um, and then, so then I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I was all about being a lawyer. I, my, uh, major was political science. I was really into that and thought I was going to go that route. Started talking with this 06, um, that was one of my law teachers. And he said, well, you do realize you have to serve for two years before you can go to law school. And I had heard that and I knew it and I said, you know, that's no problem, whatever. And he said, okay, well, what do you want to do for the first two years? What are you thinking? I was like, well, I haven't quite got that far into it. So I was dating this dude at the time. He's a real piece of work. And, uh, <laughs> Paul Hallreth, and he said, you know, why don't you just try pilot training? Like, hear me out. It was in a time where you could if you wanted a pilot slot out of the Air Force Academy, we just had so few people in my class that if you wanted it, you were going to get the pilot slot. Um, but it also was a time where if you didn't like pilot training, it wasn't your jam, you could get out. It's the self-initiated elimination. Uh, just say, like, hey, it's not my piece of pie. And um, they, you would get to put in another dream sheet. So he goes, you know, how's that any different if you don't like it now than putting in your dream sheet now, you know, just try it, see if you like it. So, uh, I hope he never listens to this because I'll say it once. Uh, he was right. So I really enjoyed <laughs> pilot training. Uh, and then, and then I guess he's been right twice in his life because, or maybe three times, cause he did ask me to marry him. Um, but he, I went through T sixes. I wanted to fly heavies. I wanted to go fly C-17s. I wanted a crew. I wanted that whole mindset. I wanted nothing to do with fighters. He was in 38s at that point. So he knew he was going the fighter bomber track and that, I just didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, actually he was a, he was a fate by then. So he said, just get into formation. Don't talk to me until you fly formation. And then, you know, I don't want to influence your decision, but I want you to do that and see what it's like. And I landed on my first formation sortie and came home and he said, so, hey, how was the sortie? And I go, you know how the sortie was. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, I know. So you want to fly 38s now? And I said, yeah, he gosh dang right I do. So, uh, yeah, so that was kind of it for me. But it's kind of seemed like I fell into it a little bit at every step of the way uh, with the best results, you know. You know, I kind of relate. You know, I didn't want to go fly the Viper. I wanted to. Really? I wanted to fly the Hog. Uh, cause I was like, Hey, I want to get in there. Like, I want to go shoot the gun and like get after the bad guys on the ground. And it was my MC 12 deployment. And also too, this is the kind of big thing. It seemed like every Viper guy who was flying 38s was someone who I would not want to hang out with. Um, uh. so when I went and did MC 12s, I was surrounded by a bunch of Viper dudes who are like, Oh, this is, these guys are actually awesome. And the mission is awesome. And so like, thank God that that deployment happened in during my fate tour to course yeah. correct before I went and made some grave mistake <laughs> flying the hog all slow. I'm sure it have been great, Ugh. but, um, you, you think that's something too? Cause 
you know, that is one issue in pilot training. There's not a lot of fighter representation, especially in the T6 world. So you're right in the primary phase where guys and gals are learning and making decisions. They're really surrounded by one school of thought, and that's heavies, tanker, cargo. Like, hey, go travel the world, get a lot of per diem. You know, if you're going to go fly fighters, it's going to be a miserable experience and you're, and you're gone. So what, I mean, you had Tone who was in 38s and kind of had that path, which is a little bit of influence. I mean, what do you think the fix is for that? Is there a fix? Like, do we need to worry about it? Like, why do, why do people need to go fly fighters? Why should they? So, I mean, I, I do think it is a definite downside to the T6. I don't think it's something that we necessarily can fix just in terms of numbers of fighter guys that we have. So, I mean, you've got to put those dudes in 38s because they're the only ones that can teach it. Um, I like you, I wanted to fly the hog. I actually, my squadron commander, Yeti Hubert was, uh, he was a Viper guy and I was his exec and he brought me into his office and he said, Hey, what do you want to fly after this? And I said, I want to fly the hog first and then, uh, the Viper after that. And this was before tone went into the Raptor and he goes, I'm going to need you to come in and take a seat. And so we <laughs> sat and we talked and he kind of talked me into the Viper at that point. Uh, but what we did, and I mean, it was a very interesting mix because I obviously had tone over in the 38 squadron, but we brought a bunch of dudes from the 50th, which was the T38 uh, pilot training squadron. We brought them over for like a round table one day with my flight. So we brought in uh, all the students that were in that class and just had them ask questions from some fighter guys, just at least to talk about it. Cause you just don't be, I think the fighter impression of the heavy side and then the heavy pr- impression of the fighter side are just both skewed cause you don't live it. Right. So it was good to have that crosstalk. And I know a couple times dudes have been able to fly, you know, they took some Raptors out and uh, took them to Vance and, talk to some dudes about the fighter side, but I don't know if there's necessarily a fix, but I mean, giving people, I think it just takes a little bit to give people the bug, you know, and maybe just getting those little nuggets because it is really important. I mean, tanker dudes, cargo bubba's like they're, they're awesome. They do the job. And I mean, they are, they're hoofing it. They're working hard and they do awesome stuff, but that doesn't take away from the fact that, you need bombs on target on time and you need good dudes that are doing that. And so, um, I think it is super, super important, but it's getting the only way you can get people to do that is just to get the word out about what the life is like and to be honest about it. Because I think the dudes that try and sugarcoat what the fighter life looks like end up doing more harm to that anyway, because I mean, these kids aren't dumb. They look at they look at a deployment schedule or they look at a TDY schedule. I mean, you look at the Shaw TDY schedule, you're like, that's right out. I mean, I lived in my, I owned my house for three years there and I lived in it for a total of nine months, you know, just on the road, just a lot. And so that takes a lot. It takes a toll on your family. So I think being honest to those dudes and telling them the good with the bad though, because that, I mean, the gamblers are my family forever though. You guys are just, my end all be all. And so, uh, I think telling dudes, Hey, it's a sacrifice, but also realize your bond with your family. Isn't like a bond of a crew on a cargo jet. That is, it's your, it's the whole squadron and it's all the time and it's for the rest of your life, you know? Yeah. So 
Absolutely. I think that's a good way of putting it. And like, no matter what you go to, there's going to be sacrifice involved in it. Oh yeah. And you can sugarcoat it with, if you're traveling the world in a C-17 and you're staying at some awesome hotels, like you're still on the road and you're still sacrificing. And there's still those deployments where you're yeah. not staying in a nice hotel. You're staying in a tent <sighs> in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah. So it's definitely a balance. I think the one thing I definitely took away from my experience, which I think you and I are very similar in that, because I wasn't necessarily geared towards going the fighter track in the beginning, but I had someone who was a fape on my cross country in the T6 talked to me about, I would say, educating me about the process, which pushed me to putting T38s down and put on the path. But I think the lesson for me that I take away is like never close a door or shut an mm-hmm. opportunity. You never know when you have an interaction with one person, what that interaction, what that impact might be and what it might turn out to be 10 years down the road, five years down the road, whatever it might be. So there's a lot to, to go with that. How was yeah. your transition out of the T6 world into the Viper? What did that kind of look like? Cause I know people will be interested in hearing that. Um, I actually thought I was ready. You know, I was ready to go back and learn something new. And I feel like the whole time when you're a fape, it's almost like you don't have an identity. Like everybody else says, you know, Hey, you know, I'm teaching T6s, but I was an X guy, you know, I was a KC-135 guy. I was an F-15 Bubba, you know? And so you kind of, I mean, you know, you just kind yeah. of, it's kind of, you're in this bubble where you're like, well, I'm a fape, so I don't really know anything, but I can fly an ILS real good, you yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, uh, I was ready to get back in the, I thought the most difficult part actually was just the initial toe dip into being a student again, you know, getting back into the 38, relearning how to fly it to get ready for, uh, IFF. So introduction to fighter fundamentals. I think that was the hardest transition for me to make, just getting out of the instructor mindset and getting back into, Hey, you don't know anything about anything anymore. So just start listening. Um, but going over to the Viper, I thought, so don't get me wrong, learning the Viper and everything else was difficult. Uh, and I, I don't think I necessarily struggled, but it was just a new kind of challenge that I had. Um, but I was also the senior ranking in our class. And so that was something that as a fape, you're the youngest dude, you're the youngest one that's just learning from all these, the old guys, you know, in air quotes. Um, and now you're, you're the old guy, you know, and people are coming to you with, family problems and all sorts of other stuff that, I mean, I still think I'm like this young kid. I'm a young captain going into, uh, Vipers. And then there's, you know, young Lieutenant whose wife is pregnant and he's having issues with that. I mean, I don't have kids. I had no idea what was going on. I didn't really know how to help him. So I think that there was a struggle for me to balance the leadership side and learning to lead people. Cause I had never really done that before. And balance that with taking the time to learn the Viper because I am, I know stretch of the imagination was like the distinguished graduate. You know, <laughs> I was, I was hoofing it. I was trying real hard, but, um, it was an exchange. It was me trying to lead those dudes on the personal side. And then there were some of those guys that were extremely gifted that were, and had been surrounded by aviation their whole life that, uh, kind of took me under their wing and were helping me on the aviation side. You know, and that's a huge piece of it too. A lot of people are talking like, Hey, I want to be a pilot. There's more to being a pilot. You know, the air force is looking for an officer first, looking for your leadership ability, and then you're a pilot and you have to blend those two. So going through being the senior ranking officer, the SRO, as we call it, you're responsible for 
kind of leading your little group there to make sure everything is getting done within the class and working with the instructors and things like that that go into it. But it's a blend and it's not just a cookie cutter, like, here you go. Like that, it's all about problem solving. I feel like, you know, the Air right. Force is really good at just like, hey, here's a problem. Oh, here's 20 problems. And like, not only go solve these, but oh yeah, you need to learn how to fly the F-16 while, while you're doing this and not be terrible. I, and that's something to talk about too. So it goes both ways. So maybe in a certain area where like someone who is younger you in a class is doing a little bit better or vice versa. What What's kind of your mentality and how do you like blend that with, you know, cause you're not just like a dictator, right? Those people usually suck as leaders. <laughs> so what's, what's well, your take so, on it? So I know you interviewed chaos Davis the other day um, or a couple of weeks ago. He actually was one of my T6 students. And then when I went into the Viper, he was my instructor in the Viper. So we joked like my, how the tables have turned kind of thing. Um, but I think that it, the thing I love about the air force and the, like the U S air force and other countries, I think need to learn from us. And a lot of other career fields can open up and learn from us is that when you're in a debrief or a brief, the rank is off, you know, and I have seen captains go to a colonel and say like, you weren't on time. Why not? You know? And I think that the faster that you embrace that, the better things are. And I was very, very lucky because I had tone go through all of this before me. So he was the senior ranking officer in his class and he would, you know, and he had done all this kind of stuff. So I had kind of seen the balance. Um, but I, there was, there was one dude in my class that, uh, he, he wanted a workout buddy. So him and I became workout buddies, but he had flown his whole life and he loved airplanes. And oh man, did I stink at Vizrecki. So like identifying enemy aircraft, holy moly, worse in the world. And so, but he would, I would make sure that we got to the gym by X time every single day. And then he would make sure that we reviewed Vizrecki by X time every single day, you know? And so, but I think that it took, it took the air force kind of forcing that on you for you to realize, I mean, when I was an instructor, I had a major that was one of my students, you know? And so I think you kind of get forced into it. And I got to, luckily I kind of got to see it in the, me being the young guy instructing the older guy before I was the older guy instructing or with a younger dude instructing me, you know? And so I think that made it a little bit easier for me to stomach in a way because I had been on the flip side of it, but I think there's some dudes that really, I mean, it's hard to take that little gulp of, uh, your, your pride yeah. to say like, I should know this and how, why do I have to ask about it? But, uh, and I had it some days they, it was like, Hey, shut your mouth and listen, you know? Um, so, I mean, it by no means was a perfect process to learn it, but I think the earlier you learn that you're not the big fish, the the better off you are you know? Yeah. Realizing that it's not, I guess, based on age, right. You know, and there might be someone who's younger than you that has more information or a greater skill at X, Y, or Z that you can learn from. And I think that's just for every, everything. Like that's yeah. a tough mold to break because it's just inherently, you know, ingrained in us that like the older you are, the more senior ranking you are, you know, so you should be the authority figure, which is not always the case. Showing up to Shaw to fly the mighty Viper, the block 50, what was yeah. that like? Oh man. 
it was intimidating. I felt like, so I ended up one of the first people I got in touch with when I was going there was, uh, mock Franks. He was, um, he was in my kind of in my pilot training class. He, uh, we were, so at Columbus, we, unfortunately today is actually, uh, the anniversary of the crash, but we had, <clears throat> we unfortunately had a T38 crash when I was a student in T38s. Uh, Matt Emmons and Bama Faulkner passed away in that accident. And, uh, but the repercussions of that were pilot training stopped for a couple weeks. Um, and I actually washed back, this is a long story. I washed back into Mock's class. And so we had known each other at the academy, kind of met again in pilot training. And then he was already at Shaw when I was going there. Uh, so we connected in that, uh, in that capacity. So I had someone kind of to hitch my wagon to their star, if you will, at that point. Um, and he kind of showed me the ropes, but I remember, I vividly remember in pilot training, looking at the T38 motors when we did the first walk around and thinking, Oh my gosh, those are so big. And then <laughs> I remember getting to the block 50 and seeing how much stuff was hanging off of a block 50 and just thinking, I cannot believe I ever thought a 38 motor was so big, you right. know? Uh, but then also just the, the tone of the squadron, if you will, was, um, it was kind of, it was a tough time at Shaw. It was right after, um, there had been a sexual assault incident and so they're still recovering from that. They had just gotten a new commander. So everybody's kind of trying to feel out their place in the squadron. So I think it was for me kind of perfect timing because everything was in an uproar a little bit. So it was a little easier to try and figure out where I could build my place instead of trying to have to fit into a mold that was already built. Um, but I feel like I had been trained so well for the sarcasm and <laughs> I mean, and the fighter pilot lifestyle, just the way that it operates in our household anyway, yeah. um, that it was like going home. Like the first time someone made fun of me, I was like, this is it. This is where I belong. It's just perfect. So. Yeah. Fear, sarcasm, and ridicule. Like that's how we learn. I mean, that's how yeah. I, if you make fun of me, I will remember and I will try my best not to make that same mistake. <laughs> to do if, it again. Exactly. But if you're like kind and gentle, like, oh, that was kind of a, you could do better on that landing. Like it's just, try, it, it flows out and it's gone like forever, you yep. know, but if like you ridicule me, I'm like, yep, that's valid. And I don't want that to happen again. You know, again. Yep. Absolutely. What is mission qualification training? Oh, MQT. Ooh. Uh, so MQT getting, so the B course at Kelly gets you to a certain point in the F-16. They teach you, it's like the appetizer, right? They teach you just little bits of everything. You get a taste for the Viper, but you don't, they, there's not enough time or crayons for them to be able to teach me all the things that I need to know. So, uh, MQT is getting more specialized, uh, especially at Shaw doing, um, the suppression of enemy air defenses. It's kind of learning about having, uh, your, a harm. So, uh, your high speed anti-radiation missile and learning all those types of things, but it's building on all those building blocks that they've taught you in the B course. It's kind of, amplifying those. So how does this work in the combat air force? When are you going to use this in the combat air force? Okay, let's do a scenario. And you have a couple of those in the B course, uh, if I remember correctly, but it's 
everything, I felt like everything was getting you ready to go to combat. Everything in the B course is getting you ready to fly the Viper. And then MQT is getting you ready to go to combat. And I mean, you do, you finish MQT and you're, your CMR. So your combat mission ready. So that's kind of your ticket. So that's their whole job is for the IPs, the instructors and the squadron to get you to that point that the day after you get done with MQT, they could stick you in a jet and put you in combat and you could, you could hack it. You wouldn't right. be very good, but right. you'd hack it, you know? Well, so I think I showed up, what about a year after you in the squadron? Yeah. Thereabouts. So, so you know, we, when I showed up, I was going through MQT. I think I had to go to SOS somewhere in the middle of MQT, which is just like yes. primo, like go do <laughs> something that's not important. Um, and then come back when I got back, it was like June and ISIS kind of became a thing. We were slated to go down range in October. as just like a training deployment, but it quickly transitioned to getting ready to go fight them. So MQT at Shaw is, I mean, focused on suppression of any air defenses, defensive counter air, protecting a point, like very like complex, I would say mission sets, not that close air support is not, but we really don't, I don't even think there was a close air support spin up ride in the MQT syllabus. So in the three I months, I think they got rid of it. Yeah. Cause like, ah, well, yeah, we don't do this. <laughs> so can you kind of talk from, and again, I think it was like June, July timeframe where we started switching gears to get ready to go down range. What does that look like for a squadron? What it look like for us? So I think for the young guys, I mean, I was really going into it that, and you had heard from the dudes at Shaw that had previously gone to Jordan that, you know, Hey, you're going to get to go fly at the lowest place, you know, the lowest point on earth. And you're going to get to do some really cool things. And, um, but just kind of fam, if you will, in terms of, uh, you're just going to go fly the same things that you've been flying in the States, just do it in a different country. Um, and so then when ISIS became like, became an actual deal, um, it was, I felt like it was a mad dash to be able to get spun up and you're learning a whole. So all we had been preparing for was, Hey, if at some point there's some, some threat from Syria, it kind of changes our tactics. So the only real missionized stuff that we were training for, for the deployment was like, Hey, instead of having 30 miles, 40 miles, 50 miles to make a decision about someone being a bad guy. Now you have 12, you know, how does that look? How does that change our tactics? Those types of things. Uh, but when ISIS became a thing, I think it really, it put a lot on poker who and poker cast and blitz. So, uh, poker more our weapons officer, Cass Young, who was the DO at the time, and then Blitz Ayers, the commander. I think those dudes had a lot of sleepless nights of how do we train all these dudes who have had their mindset looking 12 miles out in front of them to now looking in their targeting pod and trying to find bad guys. So for us, it was more flying and ramping up and getting the maintainers on board to say, hey, you know, we're going to be excuse the expression, we're going to be balls to the wall for a while trying to get everybody spun up. Um, and then also trying to get people spun up on their family side, you know, like, Hey, you thought we were just going to do training, but now we're going to be doing combat in Iraq and Syria. Like that's a big mind shift, mind shift change, um, for 
for the families to go through too. So, and I think that that was something that weighed heavily on our commander at the time, you know, how do I balance keeping these dudes away from their family to be able to train to this whole new mission set that we didn't plan for while also giving them the time at home to be with their families before they go off to combat, you know? Um, but for a young dude, it just was awesome because it was more flying and it was learning some cool stuff. And with this dangling carrot in front of you that you're going to get to go kill some baddies, which I mean, I have never met a fighter pilot that would say like, eh, no, I'll pass. Yeah, not, not really yeah. my thing. Nah, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> no. no, I think everybody was pretty raring to go. And so it made it, it was an exciting time in the squadron, but it made for a lot of late Fridays to learn the tactics and learn the threats out there. And then, um, yeah, so it was busy, but it was fun. Yeah. I remember just like the last, like leading up to it, just going through all the different accounting, like remember blood came in. It was like, we have, 277 like sorties that are required between like now and the time we leave in order to get everyone like checked off with check rides, you know, low level MVG stuff. Like it was just a whole smattering. Like it was a full on all court press, like make it happen. The, um, and that was like, we won't dive into this too much, but to kind of like backtrack to like being the senior ranking officer going through training and learning how to fly the Viper while we're doing all this, you're the unit deployment manager. And so your only job is not just flying the Viper and training and getting ready to go. You were tasked to get us all ready. And I only can fully appreciate this because I took the job after you. (laughs) And never in my life when I joined the Air Force, like, oh, I need to know how to build a pallet to go into a C-17. But as like, they're not people, I mean, there are people to do that. The lion's share of the effort falls on the deploying unit for everything that needs to be packed, palletized, shipped. Like we could go on and on. Like there's so many different systems and things that I have no <laughs> idea why we need to know it, but you have to know it in order to get the squadron out the door and down range. Uh, and that was your job, which was a, like a four person job. And you were the only person doing that and flying, which is impressive. Uh, well, I mean, I had help. So uh, Hulk O'Donnell um, was helping me in that shop. So that was nice to have. It was learning on the fly. So I made a lot of mistakes, but luckily we had some really good logistics support most of the time that, um, those dudes were hoofing it as well. Um, because it went from the stuff that we thought that we were going to take over there drastically changed. Now you're trying to talk about getting bombs or how we're going to get them into theater and how, you know, the parts for the jets and everything else stuff was just changing on the fly. Um, and so, uh, the, like you said, this, the computer systems and stuff that I had, I mean, I kind of had a cursory overview of like, Hey, this stuff you might need to know someday, but now all of a sudden it was super important. And when you have the commander coming into your office and saying like, Hey, well, the wing commander is talking about X thing and we need to make sure stuff is a hundred percent. And it was like, well, up to this point, like 70% correct was like way yeah. working way too hard. Yeah. Um, and so, it, I mean, it was a mind shift. Or it was a, a difficult pill to swallow, I feel like, but everybody was doing their part, you know? So it wasn't easy to be in weapons, obviously. It wasn't easy to be the deployment manager. But like you said, I mean, stuff that I never really thought that I would learn, like only this number of pallets can go on to this thing. And this one has hazardous materials. So it needs to have this paperwork. Oh, man so far beyond me and there, and the, I thought actually the most difficult thing about being a UDM, uh, was 
logistics has normal hours, right? And so now we're trying to get called for night stuff. Yep. And so you're trying to talk to a loggy who's leaving at 4.30 and you're not even allowed to come into work until three because it's summer. So you're flying right. till, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden you're like, well, man, how am I supposed to get this stuff done and get a night mission done? I just, I think I was lucky at that point that I, you know, I wasn't going through an upgrade or anything else. I was a wingman. So, I mean, there were some times and blitz would come in and say like, do what you can, you know, we've the primary focus right now, we need to get out the door. So you, you have to do this job and then we will make sure to get you through your upgrade, you know, not through your upgrade, but through your uh, top off for the deployment, you know? And so, uh, thank goodness for a squadron of amazing dudes that would all help out. Cause I felt like every time I did one extra thing and thought, woe is me, I'm working so hard. Then some dude would come into the squadron and be like, Hey, I built this whole smart pack just for you. That will teach you all of the things you need to know about this bomb. And you're like, Oh, so I'm not the only one that's hoofing it right now. So that's yeah. kind of nice to know that you were in the misery together. Yeah. That's what I made a little about fighter squadron. Like everyone is like working at max capacity and just like it's mission focused. It's get the mission done and whatever it takes to, to do it. I think that that mentality really draws everyone together and like forges a bond. It's not always perfect, but you know, for the most part, like it's always, it's good. Um, so kind of fast forward and we get down range. It was a busy time. And I, I don't know exactly how much, I know you were still moving people around in theater. Cause I went and visited some other places as well as other people. And you're, you're managing again, a new, new system of like how to move people in and around in the theater and what's going on while flying combat missions. I think the tempo of it, which like, I know it happened multiple times where we were running out of bombs, like literally jets would take off. And those are the last GBU 54s that are on the base. And literally as they're coming back, like C one thirties are coming in with more bombs. Like it was a very busy time uh, with things going on. So theater did a lot of awesome work. There's one, sortie that kind of, I think is really fascinating that you were involved on with poker. And I kind of wanted to talk about that if you're cool with it um, yeah, absolutely. and let you, I'll let you kind of like lead into, and then we can just kind of dive into it, if that's cool. Sounds great. Yeah. So, uh, poker and I were airborne. This was, um, we were over Syria. So, um, just to that night, kind of a boring night. We hadn't dropped any bombs. We were still fully loaded. They got us to do, it's called NTISR. So we were doing non-traditional intelligence surveillance reconnaissance. So we were just kind of flying around. We had found some baddies, man. We were like convinced we were going to drop some bombs. Um, and it just didn't work out with (laughs) coordination. There were some other dudes that were going to come on station that I think we're going to get all the glory. You know, we do all the work. Our lives are so tough. Um, but so we had just gone to the tanker. We were going back over kind of central on our half of Syria. So it was the eastern side, but kind of center of the country. Beautiful we were country, coming back by the way. From, beautiful country. So beautiful. Uh, just so much sand as far <laughs> as the eye can see. Yeah. Um, and we were we had found some tanks and some stuff like hidden in trees. And we thought that we were just like Johnny on it. Um, but we because we just come back from the tanker, we were both 
about the same fuel state. We had just, you know, been droning around. So our power was pretty much set as nighttime. It's probably, you know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning was the train that I was on at that point. So everybody kind of just to keep your sleep schedule, you know, everybody was kind of on their own, their, their slotted time of when they would fly. Um, and so we get back over and I get an alert in my jet that I've got a problem with essentially with my fuel computer, not a big deal. I had had it before it's the checklist is pretty much tells you like, you're kind of out of luck. You just need to go back home. Um, but what it does is that my fuel needles are going crazy. So like, I have no idea how much gas I have, but it's going from zero to 12,000 pounds and everything in between freezing, going back up, you know, but like I said, we had just come off the tanker. So poker's like, Hey, here's the deal. It's no big deal. We'll just go home. We're not doing a whole lot of anything right now anyway. And we are just about at the end of our vulnerability period, our vol time. So he's like, it's, I don't, it's not going to hurt anybody if we leave right now. So we get probably like 50 or 60 miles, maybe anywhere between, let's call it 60 to 90 miles out uh, after Raqqa, um, kind of the ISIS stronghold that we were looking at that night. Um, and he's looking at his fuel and he goes like, Hey, to, um, my gas is decreasing. And I was like, I mean, that's what it's supposed to do. Right. Like, no, but he's like, it's like, uh, like I'm just watching the needle fall at kind of a rate that I don't expect. And I was like, okay. So I have my MVGs on, I do a battle damage check just to see if he's leaking gas. And I mean, we're still wingmen, but we're not idiots. I was like, dude, I don't see any gas coming out of your jet. I, I don't think you have a fuel leak. Uh, but that's from what I can see. Uh, so he's like, okay, cool. I'll continue to monitor. And then he goes, uh, Hey two, my right fuel tank just went to zero. And I was like, well, that's, that's a significant problem. Suboptimal. Uh, suboptimal in a single engine jet, uh, or in any jet that yeah. you're just losing gas. And so we're like, okay, well maybe there's something on the right fuel tank. I go look over at the right fuel tank. There's nothing. Um, so we start climbing, but thinking, you know, if he flames out, how far, you know, just starting to do the math, how far can we glide? Where can we get to? Is there an airfield anywhere around here? Um, poker decides that he is going to use our satcom our satellite communications to talk with our, with our ops back at home, um, to kind of tell him about the problem and see, we're assuming we're hoping for the best saying like, okay, I don't see any fuel leaking out of your jet. Surely it's got to be a computer issue, but he has no indications of a, of a sensor malfunction or a computer issue or anything else. So, um, I mean, you hope for the best plan for the worst. So we climb, we're up in the mid thirties and he tells me, you know, Hey, you go off and you talk with AWACS to have them coordinate, um, tell them our nearest airfield is in Saudi Arabia. We're going. Uh, so I'm talking to AWACS and our airborne warning and control, and they are trying to get a hold of Saudi Arabia, their Jetta. Um, nobody can get a hold of Jetta. Nobody. Um, and so we try every frequency that we have. We're trying to tell them that there are going to be two F-16s fully combat loaded going into their country without permission. Oh, by the way, we're going to be in the thirties and it's going to look kind of sketchy coming straight out of Syria, yeah. right into your back door. Like real sorry, um, about, about all of this. Um, so we 
we do a simulated flame out. He's preparing for the worst. Um, and then poker checks his gas again. He's like, Hey, two, uh, my left fuel tank just went to zero. And we're like, Oh, this is progressively getting worse. Um, so, um, now his main fuel tank is decreasing at a larger rate than we would expect. Um, but he hasn't flamed out yet. So he has, he's telling me everything that he's doing. He's run the, you know, pre-ejection checklist just in case something happens. He's talking to me about, um, if he does eject what that's going to look like for me to provide top cover, um, trying to get tankers kind of over in our area if we need them so that I can get gas, especially because still at the same time, I have this fuel computer problem. So I don't know how much gas I have. So he's like, you're going to have to continually go and top off until we can get people up here to protect me. Um, and so we're kind of thinking this is also after, unfortunately we had lost the Jordanian pilot and he had been a captured by ISIS. And so there are a lot of implications of that, that we're thinking about of he's, they're not getting poker. I don't, I don't care what it takes. They're not getting poker. Um, so it ends up, he's okay. We find the nearest airfield. We're able to get over there. We glide in. Um, and he just says, here's the deal. We've only really got I only want to do one pass at this because I don't want you flying over this airfield coming back around and landing just in case there's a threat in the area or anything else. We're just both going to land. And so, and he says, if you see anything bad happen, I want you to check it into AB and go around. That's fine. Like that's normal, normal, right? So he glides in, he lands. Oh, by the way, this entire time, now that we've crossed into Saudi Arabian airspace uh, without clearance, we were trying to talk to this airfield. We've got the frequencies. We all have a smart pack that says, you know, how uh, the frequencies that you're supposed to contact, what the name of the airfield is, how long the runway is, it's lighting, everything else. It turns out uh, a lot of that smart pack was wrong. So um, (laughs) the frequencies don't work. Nobody's talking to us. Um, We have an airport diagram. So we're thinking that when we land, we're not going to have a taxiway on our end. Uh, no big deal. Right. I, that's fine. We can turn around on the runway and taxi back, but we're thinking as we're not talking to anybody that has larger implications. It's like, we're going to land on this runway and we're going to taxi on an active runway, not talking to anybody. So what if there's someone else flying out there that needs to land on this runway? So anyway, um, we come in and we land and I look at poker's jet and I was like, uh, Hey one, um, like not to make this any worse, but like your brakes are like bright red and he was like wow so are yours I was like all right well so this is what hot breaks look like because we just had no idea I mean is part of the runway shut down are there animals on the runway is there anything else so the whole objective we're fully combat loaded we're at least for me I'm thinking I'm pretty heavy on gas because we had just gone to the tanker I don't know what my fuel state is but that's what I'm assuming um and so we both had honked on the brakes to be able to stop as best we can in a short amount of runway and so it has this kind of little turn off at the end of the runway. So we turn off and it was one of those like, okay, let's just wait. Let's let our brakes cool down. Let's also just take a deep breath because nobody had to eject over Syria tonight. So win for the good guys. Right. Yep. Um, also we didn't talk to anybody. So there's probably going to be some countries that are like pretty pissed about this situation. Um, so we're like, that's going to be a problem. So this, <laughs> this truck comes up and he is like, 
bumping around, clearly not on any sort of road, but this like old style uh, Toyota, I'm sure. And he's got this light on top that's kind of, that's spinning. And so our light, he comes up to us and our lights were off because you don't want to blind him, right? And so he pulls up to us and he turns his light off. And we're like, oh, okay. So we turn our light on. He turns his light on, but he doesn't move. And we were like, I'm assuming this is someone that's going to lead us to where he would like us to go. So he doesn't move. So poker says over the radio, like, how about we just turn our lights back off? Like maybe, maybe our lights are in his eyes or he doesn't know what's going on. So we turn our lights off. So he turns his light off. So we turn our lights back on. So he turns his light. I mean, this is just like comedic gold at that point. Like we're delirious. It's like, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning. Um, so we just decide, Hey, we're going to taxi. And if this guy ends up driving out in front of us to lead us where to go, sounds great. So we start taxiing. He ends up coming out onto the runway and having us follow him. Um, where we first park, where he first leads us to, we're essentially pointed at a civilian terminal. We've got forward firing ordinance. We have bombs on the jet. We're in a country we're not supposed to be in. So we end up turning kind of, we do a 270 to point into the desert where there's nobody there to kind of be out of the way. And he says to your, you're going to keep your jet on. Um, I'm going to shut down my motor. I'm going to get out and I'm going to find out if this is, um, if this is safe for you to be able to shut down. Uh, cause I don't know if you can tell from my voice, but I'm a chick. Yeah. I was so, going to mention that if people can't, if they haven't figured it out by your name and your voice that yeah, you're a chick in Saudi Arabia in the middle of the night who just flew in a, yeah. a fighter jet. Yeah. Yeah. We're at this time women can't drive. Yep. So, uh, we're pretty much batting a thousand. Um, <laughs> So we end up having kind of this long to do, uh, to figure out how to put, how to tell them to put chalks in, uh, poker ends up drawing like a real sweet picture of a circle with like these triangles around it, trying to show them exactly (laughs) what we want them to do. They finally figure it out. Um, they get this guy that we end up finding out as a pilot, they get him over there, but we're trying to give the hand signals for chalking us in. They have no idea what we're talking about. Um, so anyway, the pilot ends up when he comes over, he ends up figuring out what we're trying to say. So he gives a, they chalk us and, uh, or they chalk poker, poker shuts down. And then he gives me like the all clear signal. I shut down and, <laughs> and the thing I was nervous about was taking off my helmet. Cause it, I mean, this is the first time these people are going to realize that they've got a chick on their base essentially. So I take off my helmet and all I hear is, uh, Hello. My name is Johnny Cash. Welcome to Saudi Arabia. You are safe here. And I was like, <laughs> what world did I just end up in? Um, turns out this dude that went to pilot training at Columbus when I was an instructor was one of our international Saudi students. Um, and he had gone back to Saudi. He flew Apaches um, in the Saudi Arabian Air Force. And the only reason he was out there is because ISIS had gone over the fence between Iraq and Saudi Arabia, and he was supposed to do some border patrol in his Apache that night. Well, his Apache had broken, um, so he wasn't flying, but they had left the lights at the airfield on. So apparently they were not supposed to have lights that night. Um, If that dude hadn't been TDY out there, they weren't going to have a pilot out there. um, Wow. And they wouldn't have had any military presence at that point. Um, 
But it turns out, you know, some days you'd rather be lucky than good. Yeah. He ends up taking us in. He goes back to his little uh, hotel room, brings a coffee maker and stuff and brings us out there, but, uh, or brings all that stuff out there. But we said, you know, like, Hey, we can't, we can't leave our jets. Like they're, they're American jets. They've got our American information on it yep. that you guys can't have. Um, so we've got to stay out with the jets and it is stinking cold. It is January in Saudi Arabia. And I did not know January in Saudi Arabia was cold, but it's stinking cold. So, um, they said, well, we've got this fire tower, um, that looks right over your jets. Can you guys come inside and you can still watch your jets from there. You can see who's over there and we will put an armed guard at your airplane. So, uh, we say, yeah, that's fine. As long as we can keep eyes on. So we go up there, um, we have eyes on the jets and, um, the biggest man I've ever seen in my entire life goes out to guard our jets. And, um, we went back out to go look over the airplanes after daylight. And I talked to this young man who's, I just, I don't know if it was just like, you know, the heat of the moment or whatever, but I just, I remember him being enormous and walking up to him and saying, thank you so much for what you're doing. And all he could say was no English. And then he offered me his gloves to be able wow. to go to my jet, which I thought was really nice because I was trying to take more of a back seat because one, I'm the wingman, but also two, I'm a female in a, you know, Muslim country that I don't want to, I'm not there to offend anybody. I'm not there to, you know, put it out. You know, I don't need to advertise the fact that what I do or you know, I don't need to impose like my social upbringing into their culture. You know, they're being nice enough to let us be there. Um, but he offers me his gloves, which I thought was very, very nice. Um, but we come to find out as we go back to the fire tower that the tower frequency we had was this fire tower of non-English speaking people who, oh, wow. um, they're not supposed to, I mean, the airfield's not supposed to be open, even though everything we had said it was open, the fire tower is open but the runway was not supposed to be lit. It was not supposed to be anything. So, um, Johnny cash, whose name ends up being Muhammad. Um, he is like apparently this fast burner in the Saudi Arabian air force as we hear it. And every general is calling him. So we were just hearing him speak in Arabic and all of a sudden you would hear like land as soon as possible. And then he would speak in Arabic and then he would say, emergency impending engine failure. And then he would speak in Arabic again. So at least we had someone that was, that understood what was going on when we told him the situation. And then we got a call from the state department that said, um, or no, from the, from Blitz, our commander said, Hey, I'm in talks with, to see if we can get someone out there or get uh, a C-130 out there with our maintainers to be able to fix your jets and get home. And, um, so then we end up finding out later we get in the C-130. So they come in, they repair our jet um, and we're in the C-130 and they said, uh, that's the fastest clearance we've ever gotten into Saudi Arabia to be able to get your diplomatic clearance and do everything yeah. to get into Saudi Arabia. And they said, what happened? He said, well, our commander told us that the state department called him and said it was going to be 13 days to get a dip clearance into Saudi Arabia. And then <laughs> Blitz said, oh, right. Did I mention that his wingman is a female? And they said, we'll call you right back. And uh, they had a C-130 on the ground in like 12 hours, less than 12 hours to uh, repair everything. Cause they really wanted me out of their country, like real bad. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, I mean, just crazy. All of it is just insane. And I, I do remember 
I was on the night train, I think still, but maybe I was like off that night. And by the time, like I heard it happen, went to bed and got up, like the jets were already back that afternoon, which is just like wild. Yeah, it was nuts. And they, I mean, the dudes that we were with in Saudi were, I mean, the guys that were there, um, some were a little more, um, cautious about speaking to me or being around me, but they were, uh, very open and work to work with poker. And they, they made all of our maintainers, this big fancy lunch and, uh, brought all this food in, but they had, they had one civilian flight that had to go out that was going from there to Jeddah. Um, and I don't know what they said to these poor passengers, but they, uh, I mean, it was air stairs, so they didn't have like a terminal or any, I mean, you know, you didn't have like the jet bridge. So they were going to have to walk outside and see these American jets sitting out there. So I don't know what they said, but that dude that was larger than life was standing between their commercial airplane and our jets. And I did not see a single person even look in that direction. And I mean, in the age of social media and everything else, like in the States that would never play, right? Like you would never, ever, oh man, nothing, not a single person even looked in that direction. So I don't know what they said, but it was pretty interesting to see the difference in cultures. So I was like, I'd be snapping some pics. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't know. That's an incredible story to me because I know just you're flying your single engine airplane over bad guy land. And like you said, one of the Jordanians we work with uh, a bunch had gone down just prior to that and was captured and murdered by ISIS. So that's at the forefront of your mind. And then you're balancing all these things of like coordinating, like, is my jet going to run out of gas? What can I do to fix it? Who do I need to be talking to? Where can we go? Uh, And then let alone like, oh, we're going to go into another country without permission. We're going to be flowing from North to South. It's going to look like, oh, these are Syrian jets that are coming to invade us. Um, Just like there's so many things. And then not to mention it's out in the middle of nowhere. You can't talk to anyone landing in this random field that's not really prepared to, I mean, it's not prepared to F, accept F-16. So yeah, it's just like mind, mind blowing. It's all part of the process. I don't know. It's a really cool story. I appreciate you sharing that. I think there is definitely a lot to take away from it. And it's just a cool war story in my mind. Yeah. It's one of my favorites to be, or it's actually one of Tone's favorites to tell when he's, you know, had a couple scotches. Cause he just says like, who can say that they've flown into Saudi Arabia as a chick? And most of the dudes I, that are around are like, well, so I'm not a chick. So yeah, well, none of us can say that. Yeah. So there you go. You, you got that on them. Right? <laughs> hey. <laughs> well, Tally, I really appreciate you taking the time today to chat, kind of share your story. I think we could keep going on and on. I have to get poker on here next. I was saving that for when we're out of like social distancing, probably for some <laughs> scotch when he and I are Flying oh man, big you'll never around. get them to stop yeah. talking. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it'd be cool to hear that side too, I think. Uh, yeah, so again, absolutely. I really appreciate you taking the time. It was great to catch up and again, share your journey there. Well, thanks for having me, Rain. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening in today. Again, don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a rating over on iTunes. And until next time, don't bring a week. <laughs>